As I get started, um, I, uh, I thought I'd uh, share with you a little bit about what's going on in, in our life. In uh, f- last February, it was a normal February day, and uh, I went into our library, and we found that there was liquid uh, below on the floor. And I have two dogs, and so my immediate thought was our dogs had accidents. I stuck my hand in it. I, I don't recommend doing that, but I did. Luckily, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a dog accident, and I thought to myself, oh, this is good news. And then I quickly realized, oh no, this is very bad news. And what then proceeded to happen was to realize that there was a leak in our library. And if you've ever dealt with insurance, it takes a really long time to do anything. And so that leak eventually, it took them like six weeks for them to send people out. And so the water spread into our kitchen. And so what, what began as a small leak uh, became an entire bottom floor kitchen renovation. And so if you come to our house, it will look like nothing. We have ripped out everything, and so we are camping on our second floor. So as a result of that, this week, I met with a contractor, and I had to sign a contract, right? And if you've ever signed a contract, there are uh, multiple people will sign their name, and there are rules and stipulations, agreements saying that uh, those involved will do these things, and those involved will do these other things. In a contract, it's a typically a legally binding uh, document, and uh, it requires and obligates us to do what is placed before us. Well, today we're going to be talking not about a contract, but something similar. We're going to be talking about a covenant, a covenant. And whereas a contract is, uh, and, and in scripture they're even used interchangeably in some sense, but what's different between a, about a covenant is that it's a spiritual agreement between multiple parties, and as we're going to see today with a lot of people. It's a spiritual agreement in which uh, those engaged in it agree to live and do and be a certain way. Uh, In our context here at IBC, the covenants we might think of are the covenant of marriage, as well as our membership covenant that we read every time we install new members. And so today in Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to be looking at a covenant that begins with a list of people and then the features of the covenant. Uh, But before we do, let me open us in a word of prayer, asking that the Lord would guide our time today. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are so good and kind in laying out not only commands, but descriptions of how the people of God in the past followed you. And Lord, as we look to an example of covenant renewal, of a recommitment back to the things of the Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would see these truths, and bring them here into our, into our New Testament context. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So when I get the privilege of being here, we've been in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, for some context, in the chapter before, we did Nehemiah chapter 9, which was the longest prayer in the Bible. And even before building up to that, for those who perhaps haven't been here with us, or if it's been some time, the book of Nehemiah has been the story of Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, who has led the people of Israel back to Jerusalem after being conquered, and despite all odds, he helped rebuild a wall. Well, he not only helped rebuild a wall, what we see in the later chapters of Nehemiah is that his primary objective was to rebuild the people of God and to restore worship and to call people to live obediently 
because up until now, their obedience had been found uh, lacking. And so, Nehemiah chapter 9, after a long prayer in which Israel confesses their sin, in which uh, they say things such as, For you, O God, have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. They ask for mercy, and they say to God, We have been slaves. And it's right after that prayer that in verse 38, the verse preceding chapter 10, it says, Because of all this, because of our sin and your faithfulness, we, Israel, make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so in our passage today, we're going to um, be cutting it into, into two parts. Uh, the first part, the people who signed the covenant in verses 1 through 29, and then in verse 2, I'm not verse 2, in the second part, we'll be looking at the promises sealed in the covenant, verses 30 to 39. I'll make a quick note about uh, the structure here. In a sense, you could, we could have made the second section begin at verse 28, because um, that's really the heart. That's where the covenant begins. But verse 28 and 29 gives us so much information about who these people were. Just for structural purposes, I included, included it in the first section. All right, so as we begin, um, we should probably understand a little bit about what this uh, idea of covenant renewal was. Covenant renewal. Back in the Old Testament, the way in which God related to his people was through covenants. As the word of God was being progressively given to the people of God, they knew more things and more things over time. And as they learned new things, they also forgot old things. And they would uh, disobey God and they would forget things. And it had been about a thousand years from Nehemiah's time back to the time of Moses. And so if you can think back a thousand years, that's, there's a lot to forget. And so when the people of God realize they are in sin and have fallen away from God, they have had a practice of having covenant uh, renewal. And what covenant renewal uh, really is, is going back and like blowing off the dust of that which God has said making it fresh again and saying, we will hold ourselves to these truths. Covenant renewal uh, was about recommitting the people of God back to the words of God. And perhaps for many of these people, it wasn't so much going back as it was a newfound faith and a new um, introduction to the things that they should have been following. So let me go ahead and begin by reading our passage. Now, you first... You'll notice there's a huge list, and the way I'm going to approach this, we'll read this in chunks. So prepare yourself for many names. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1, and we'll read down all the way down to 30 right now. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Moloch, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binui, the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel. And their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, 
Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people. Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Atter, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, <coughs> Meshezabel, ugh, that was a hard one, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halahesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehem, Hashabana, Maaseah, Ahia, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harum, Bana. All right. Wow, that was really long. A lot of names. I feel like I need to take a bow. All right. Um, I'll admit that as I was reading this, like every day I tried to read this out loud, and I'm like, dude, I am totally going to just butcher some of these names. There are 84 names here in this list, and don't worry, we're not going to go over each and every name. In fact, Scripture tells us very little about most of these names, but what's important are actually more the groupings than the individual names. So uh, let's, uh, let's get... Uh, let's get cracking. The way we're going to kind of approach this section is kind of breaking this into three parts. Who are these people? Why did they sign their names? And just the more basic question, why is this recorded in Scripture? I mean, we know it's for growing in righteousness, but perhaps we can go a little deeper. Okay, so just right off the bat, it says, on the seals are the names. Just really quick, when it says seals, uh, that would be the Old Testament way of signing your name. And so whether they actually signed their name or it's possible there was like wax or clay and they used some type of family insignia to uh, press upon a document. What's important is all these people and these families are represented here. Now before we go in, we should probably talk about what are they actually agreeing to, right, before we go into their names. So it gives us some context as to what they're signing on to. So if we can skip down to verse 28 to 29, let me finish our reading. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. This covenant, as we alluded to before, is about going back to the Mosaic law, going back to the Pentateuch and saying, that which we have forgotten, what we have not been doing, we are going to do. It says they join, verse 29, with their brothers. Everyone who was in agreement with this covenant, and there is those who signed their name, verses 1 to 28, 27, and there are those who didn't sign, but they agreed and probably gave their verbal assent. They're joining together, and they're entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses. What they are doing is they are going back to the words of uh, Deuteronomy. They are probably most directly reopening the book of uh, Deuteronomy, and they are looking at chapters 28 and 29, in which Moses calls the people of God to turn to him and to obey, obey God. And he says, 
all these blessings. He says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, Deuteronomy 28 verse 1, then he will bless God's people. He'll give them the fruit of the cattle, um, the, fr- the fruit of the land. He'll bless them. They will grow. Um, they will continue to succeed. It will be a good life if they will make the oath to obey God. But then in chapter, uh, later on in chapter 28, there are curses that God says. He says in verse 15 of uh, Deuteronomy 28, but if you will not obey, if you will not obey the Lord your God, then he will send on you curses, confusion, frustration in all you undertake, verse 20, until you are destroyed and perish and quickly on the account of your evil deeds. Verse 25 says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and seven ways before them. They'll be scattered and defeated. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over to a nation. And Israel doesn't even have a king yet apart from God. So it's even foretelling that they would set themselves up having a king. And it says that neither you nor your fathers have known. They will be one day enslaved by foreign powers. It's as if God knew what would happen, and of course he did. The idea for this covenant is they are just rereading the book of Deuteronomy, going back to those chapters and saying, we will do this. And even though, of course, God was already holding them to account, they were saying, we are going to hold ourselves to account. And as a note, if you're wondering, has this ever happened before? This idea of covenant renewal has actually happened a number of times. Uh, it happened in, right before Joshua died, in Joshua 23, 24. It happened under King Asa, during the third month of his 15th year of his reign. King Hezekiah did it when he purified the temple um, from foreign influences. And it happened under King Josiah, if you remember that one, when he found the scroll of the Torah and it had been left unread. And so this is a thing that anyone during Nehemiah's time who had, was familiar with the words of Israel, this was something that had been a practice. So now let's talk about who these people were, who these people were. So 84 names, and I hope I did my math right. Uh, So first off, we have two officials, two officials. It says, Nehemiah, the governor of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. Okay, so first things first, by Nehemiah signing his name first, he was prominently placing his name, showing that despite all the opposition he had gone against, all the enemies, that he was still championing and supporting uh, the spiritual reforms of Israel. Then we get the name Zedekiah. And what's interesting is in your ESV, I think it just has a comma, but if anyone has an NASB, yours will actually say the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah. It will actually include that word. And a lot of translations don't include that conjunction. But because all the other names are just... There is no conjunction between them. Most commentators, and I would agree, um, seem to suggest that by saying, and Zedekiah, it's including Zedekiah in the grouping that Nehemiah would have fallen into. Because what next happens is we get priests, and we get a bunch of names, Levites, and a bunch of names, leaders, and a bunch of names. And so Zedekiah probably would have fallen more in the lines of something closer to a governor's position. We might say officials. Notice that Nehemiah says his title. He says Nehemiah the governor. Again, continuing to show that the, the civil authorities were behind this. Well, what then happens next is we get 21 priests. 21 priests. Um, I think as we talk about this, it's probably helpful to understand and review briefly 
um, what it meant to be a priest, because so much of what we're going to talk about is about priestly duties. So, uh, this is probably the most time I've ever spent in the book of Leviticus, um, a place where a lot of Bible, plan, Bible reading plans go to die. Um, and let me just say, it was fascinating. Um, don't worry, but I'll kind of summarize it for you. So what we learn about priests is priests, they are a subset of the tribe of Levi, right? If you remember the tribe of Levi, we'll talk about that in a moment. The tribe of Levi came from uh, the third son of Israel, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Some of the Levites were called to be priests, specifically those who came from the line of Aaron. More specifically, priests had to be male and they had to be from the ages 25 to 50, in Numbers 8, 24 to 26, it specifically lays it out. They have to be 25, and then when they hit 50, they are recommended to retire. And it may interest you that I found out that King David actually changes that. And in Second Chronicles, Chronicles 23 to 27, he actually lowers the, age, the minimum age to be a priest to the age of 20, probably to match the minimum age for military service. The role of the priest was to be a mediator between God and man, so you could not go directly to God in the way we as New Testament Christians think that you can, but first you had to be made ceremonially clean through sacrifices. And this was meant to show Israel that it cost something. There was a price to be in relationship with God because of our sin. Now, as New Testament Christians, we often think, we hear the word sacrifice, and I think we instantly think of the words of Hebrews 10, one through, uh, Hebrews 10, 4, which say, it's impossible, for it is impossible, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's absolutely true. We needed Jesus Christ. And yet, it's important to recognize during Nehemiah's day, they were still under Levitical law, for which it actually says in Leviticus 4.20, that with the bull of the sin offering, he shall do this, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And so even though there was an ultimate forgiveness through the death of a bull, the death, the death of a bull in the Old Testament pointed to the need for an ultimate savior. And so what the priests did uh, was important to the people of God. Furthermore, among the priests, there was one priest, the high priest, who one day a year could enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, Again, showing that the installation and the existence of priests showed how difficult and how hard it was to have a relationship with the holy God. It came at great cost. Well, the next group then, we have our 17 Levites. 17 Levites. Six of these, maybe seven, uh, depending on how, if, if their name is like a nickname for another name. Six, at least, of these names are found in Nehemiah chapter 8, when there is the teaching of the law, the solemn assembly, when Nehemiah, Ezra, reads the word of God for six hours. And these Levites are the ones helping. Now let's talk a little about the Levites, because the Levites' role at this time had most like, or had assuredly changed from how it began. When the Levites' role began, if you were not a priest, you had a different responsibility. There were three different clans of Levi, uh, three major clans. There were the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites. And I think it's just fascinating because God, when he called Israel to wander in the wilderness and to have a moving temple, like almost like a moving church, they called it the tabernacle, God thought through even the logistics and the details of how this would happen. 
The Kohathites, um, they had to do, they took care of the objects within the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the table showbread, the holy items. So if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and you think of those people carrying the Ark, uh, those people who were supposed to do it were the Kohathites. Next, we have the Gershonites, and their job was to take care of the decorations, the ropes, the cloth, the curtains inside uh, the sanctuary. And uh, this is a bad dad joke, but the way I always remember the Gershonites is the people of Gershon took care of the curtains. Okay, so that's how I remember that one. Last was the Merorites, and these were like the heavy lifters. Their goal was to take care of the pillars and the bases, the frames, the pegs, the structural building of this big temple known as the tabernacle. Now, at this point, however, there was no longer a need for a tabernacle because during the time of King David, they actually built a permanent uh, temple. And so, with those moving tasks no longer needed, uh, there is a development in the role of Levites. And without going all throughout the Old Testament, uh, what we see is that their roles become a little bit different. Uh, the Levites are found doing things such as um, being guards, guards of the temple, singers, uh, teachers, judges. Uh, they took a lot of custodial roles, being taking care of temple maintenance and making sure that uh, they continued to upkeep the temple building. And in some sense, the way I, this is a really flawed example, but maybe to give some sense and appreciation of who the Levites were. The Levites, perhaps, are, I think of them as being similar to like our deacons, except if they all came from one family and uh, uh, had different roles uh, based on family lineage. And so the Levites were the people who helped and supported the priests. By having the Levites and priests here, what's important to recognize, these were the spiritual authorities of Israel. This was Israel showing that those who were supposed to lead God's people were coming back to lead God's people. What we then next have are the leaders, or we might call them chiefs of the people, as the passage says. There are 44 leaders in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, they call them princes. In chapter 10, verse 29, they call them nobles. And the way we should understand these, these were influential family leaders. These were, uh, this, is, this is the influential grandfather. This is the father who represents many other families. And for here in this portion, there are 44 other names. And what's important here is that these were people who would have been spiritual leaders in their homes, in their social gatherings. And these are probably the people who in Nehemiah chapter 8, if you remember back in verse 13, after uh, the solemn assembly, Nehemiah Ezra holds a special Bible study. And it says this, The heads of fathers' houses, all of the people, with priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the word of the law. The Feast of Booths is then established. Most likely, the people who showed up to that are these names. These are the people who said, we're going to set a new spiritual direction for our family. And if these spiritual leaders could shepherd their families in this way, it would be a huge turning point in the spiritual condition of Israel. And then after that, we get everyone else. The ones for whom scripture says in verse 28, all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands. In verse 28 to 29, written within the covenant, we get all the people who didn't sign their names, but would have agreed to what was going on. 
It says, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who separated themselves. It includes wives, sons, and daughters. And the determining factor of those who joined here in the, all the rest were those who had a knowledge and an understanding. And so this wasn't just a, uh, a group of men agreeing. This was families. This was anyone who could understand what God had called them to do uh, back in the Mosaic Covenant. I want to make an important distinction here that what we see is that this is all people who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands and to the law of God. I think what's important to recognize what these people all have in common is they have chosen to separate themselves from the world. And that separation isn't just an isolation. It's separation from something and to something, to the law of God. These are people who are putting their name down and saying, we will follow after God. These are the people who signed their names. Now, as a quick note, one name you may, recognize, you may realize isn't here, that's curious, is the name of Ezra. Right? You might expect Ezra, who is scribe and priest, but he's not recognized here. And most, uh, there's two possible reasons. Number one is that he was from the family of Sariah. That's the first name in verse two. And so he could have been included there. It's also likely that he was the one who drafted this covenant. And so for that reason, he chose not to include himself. All right. So let's talk about why they signed their names. Like, why do they feel the need to formalize this? Why not just say it and do it? Well, I think the first thing that we can point out is to make very clear that the people of God were setting a new spiritual direction for their families. So that anyone who had a question about where our family is headed, why we're doing what we're doing, that they could be clear about the reality that our family was going to do differently as the generations before us. We were going to follow after God. We were going to start to do sacrifices. We were going to start giving to the temple because apparently that hadn't been going on. They're saying that even if we had never done the Feast of Booths and all the things God calls us to do, we're going to live differently. And, you know, that's not too different as we think about our church membership role, right? When we, when we state that we're a church member here, we are saying that we will raise our children and future generations in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, additionally, it was to be held accountable. It was to be held accountable by entering in an oath and a curse what they were saying is this is an act of solidarity, and we want to be held accountable, and we want to hold each other accountable to these truths. We want anyone to know, and this would have been a public document, that if anyone saw us sinning or not holding to the things they're calling themselves to do, someone could say, hey, why are you not doing this? And they could say, yes, yes, you are right. There is accountability here. And I think there's a lesson here for all of us that when we're serious about change and recommitting our life to Christ, I think there is great value in biblical principle and rationale to share that with people who will hold you to your convictions. Thirdly, it's to set them apart from the other nations. As Christians in the New Testament, the Bible calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. We spread the gospel primarily by going to people, or at least you know, going out, leaving our church to, to tell people to come in. But in God's original design for God's people, it was actually the opposite. Rather than us going out, it was for the nations to flock to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6-7, through seven, it says this, 
the people will say, Surely this is a great nation, wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God to us? The idea here was God was trying to build a theocracy. He was trying to build a nation that truly loved God that was so different and distinct that people around them would go, Do you guys hear about what's going on over in Jerusalem? They care for one another. They care for their poor and their sick. They live differently. And for them to go, maybe there's something different about their God. And for that to compel people. They were called to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 49.6, it highlights this. When God says, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. By putting their names in here, they were trying to make headway, to work towards being a nation that was different and fulfilling what God had called them to. But as we know and we can appreciate here as Christians, this side of the cross, the way in which that would happen would not be Israel being so great, but for being one Israelite, one Jew, Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, who would compel people to come to him. And last, uh, as last as we kind of finish, just real brief, why is this recorded in Scripture? I was thinking about this, like, why did God feel the need to include, uh, just why is this covenant here? Because the, all the other, co- most of the other covenants, many of them, it just says they, they made a covenant and they renewed it. It doesn't give us the details of it. But I think it gives us three things real briefly. Number one, it reminds us that obedience is a corporate matter. As maybe westernized uh, Americans, it's easy to think of our Christianity as very individual. It's just about me and Jesus. And yet what we see throughout the New Testament is so many of the commands in Scripture are called to be corporate. So many of the commands are actually in the Greek commanded not to individuals, but to whole groups of people, to entire churches. First Peter 5, when it says, humble yourselves, it's not you, individual, humble yourself. It's you, group, humble yourselves. And the implication there is as much as we work on our own humility, those around you should be helping you work towards that obedience. In that same vein, by putting their names down, anyone who had their name down would be able to look to the left and to the right and be reminded that they are in it together to be obedient as a community of faith. It's a reminder also that obedience is a serious matter. Uh, That obedience is not something that you take or leave, that you can just say, you know, I'll obey God and with no desire and no intention of changing anything. What we see here is, in our next section, we're going to see they are very specific, oddly specific, as to how they will achieve their obedience. And sometimes they go exactly to what the Word of God says. Sometimes they even actually go a little bit further, putting up guardrails so they'll be obedient to God. And lastly, reminded that obedience requires some understanding of who the people of God are. Here at IBC, we believe firmly in church membership um, because in order to obey the full counsel of God, there has to be some concept of who the people of God are and who they aren't. And clearly, that was the case here in our passage, right? It says they separated themselves from the people of the lands, from those who moved to the law of God. And as we think of obeying the full counsel of God, as we think of things such as church discipline, where we have to tell things to the church or put people outside the church, there has to be a concept of who the people of God are. And though it's common for us to want to sit on the fence about where we stand before God, uh, which local church we are being held accountable to, there is a biblical basis, and I think this passage is one example 
of how we see that obedience requires some understanding of who the people of God are and who the world is. Now let's move on to verses 30 to 39, the meat of the covenant. So as we kind of look at this covenant, the heart of this covenant can be summarized in the idea of recommitment or obedience back to God. And I think it's best summarized, perhaps, in the final verse when it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. But as we kind of try to break this down, I'd like to go a little bit deeper into what we have here. So we have three categories of promises. These are the promises sealed in the covenant. So the first was a separation from the people. A separation from the people, particularly in the context of marriage. Particularly in the context of marriage. Now what we'll see here is... Right off the bat in verse 31, uh, verse 30, he begins by saying, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. A declaration is made about future marriages. They understand that how the nation of Israel will progress will be determined by who they connect themselves to, who they marry. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, it lists out seven different nations that we're among the Canaanite people when Israel is about to take the land. And God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 to 4, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now this passage and passages like these have often been misunderstood to think that our God uh, is a racist, right? And it's actually really sad that throughout areas of American history, these types of verses have been used uh, to say that marriage between different ethnic groups is outlawed. But if you read these carefully, you'll see that the issue is not that of race or ethnicity, but of holiness. Because as we saw in Deuteronomy 7.4, it says there's a reason. If you marry those outside the people of God, they would turn away your sons from following me. And then the next verse says, and the anger of the Lord would be kindled and you would be destroyed, you quickly. The issue here that Nehemiah sees is that the people of God have been conquered. The result of the spiritual state of Israel is because, and precisely because, they married people outside the people of Israel. They married people who had a different faith and a different God. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, showed in many ways that he was also the unwisest men who ever lived in marrying uh, foreign princesses. And so what we see here is an issue of, of holiness and being tied to the people of God. We see this echoed and continued on, um, even as New Testament Christians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, in which it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? The idea here is that there is a consistent theme in Scripture in which we can't be unequally yoked, in which we can't have a relationship with a non-believer for which it forces us to have a kind of partnership or fellowship or relationship where we have to share values and share share motives in, in what we plan to do. 
It's, of course, not an obligation that we can't interact with our non-believing friends or have relationships, but the idea is we can't be unequally yoked. And though this passage in 2 Corinthians isn't limited just to marriage, it absolutely would have included it. And so if I could just speak to anyone here um, who's looking for a future spouse and who's thinking about these types of things, uh, let me encourage you with these words. If you're a Christian today, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Scripture calls us to be attracted to the Christ we see through another person. And if we can be attracted through someone who doesn't know Christ, uh, then it shows that there is something deeply wrong with what we see in that person. Uh, To be clear, and just to make it abundantly clear, I think Scripture is plain that it is sinful uh, to have a relationship, a marriage, with a non-Christian because it would be unequally yoked. And here back in Nehemiah, we see that is the first thing they say, future marriages, we will not give our children to those um, for the nations. Now, as a quick aside, I, um, I, I actually think that um, this actually does allow for marriage with other, back in Nehemiah's time, marriage with other people who were what we might call sojourners or God-fearers who had joined the people of Israel. And I think we see see room for that in verse 28 because it says all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God. And then that same grouping is used in verse 30 um, when it talks about the people of the land. And so I see this as being limited to those who are pagans, the pagan people of the land. As we continue on, then we're going to see the Sabbath, verse 31. Verse 31. They continue not just about how they need to separate from the people and be different, in their relationships, but how they need to be different in terms of, you could say, their free time, how they spend their week, and how they do their worship. Verse 31 says this, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So as you guys know, this, and during the Sabbath, God had called his people to not work. It was a day of rest. But it seems that Israel had found a loophole, and we see that it's, it's brought back when, spoiler alert, Israel will not hold to all these covenants, promises. But in Nehemiah chapter 13, they, they, there seemed to be issues that probably they were struggling with now. And probably the issue was that even though Scripture did not say that you could not shop and you could not buy things on the Sabbath to stop you from working, probably what had happened was the surrounding uh, pagan, non-believing uh, businessmen would come into Israel and they would sell their wares. And so if you were a businessman, a craftsman, you could kind of get by by not doing work, in a sense, but you could begin your shopping on Sunday. You could begin to buy your business materials. You could begin to have conversations about business contracts And in verse 31, what we see is the writers of the covenant choose to go beyond actually what the Mosaic covenant had called them to in order to place guardrails, protections, to help Israel to be faithful given the temptations that they were struggling with. As we think about the Sabbath as a day, they misunderstood what the Sabbath was supposed to be about. The Sabbath was supposed to be at a time of rest, Right, a time to realize that even the strongest of men need to rest. That's how God designed us. On the seventh day, God rested. 
And how many of us are often overworked and feel that we are constantly running around and we have little time to think and to pray and be with our families? It's not only about rest, it's about fellowship. It's about putting aside a time back in the Old Testament to be with the people of God, to talk about how you are doing, to commune over the things of the Lord. Rest, fellowship, and worship. It was about congregating over who God is and praising and exalting him and gathering around his word. Well, it wasn't only about an issue of the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. For it says uh, that it says, we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Scripture in, in Exodus 23 called them to make a very strange, by other standards, a very strange business practice. Where on the sixth year, for six years you shall sow your land, gather its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave and that uh, what they leave to the beasts of the field you may they may eat this is really strange right for the rest of the world they would have just continued to work their farms business as usual continue to advance their career and the uh, the wealth of their family but Israel was called to do something that was different and we see this continual theme of separation being separate from the nations and so they were called to let their fields do nothing for a year so that the poor could be taken care of. And you can imagine uh, your unbelieving business partner just down the street who'd say, what, you have this huge farm. Why are, you not, why are you not growing wheat? Why not make more money? Imagine all that money you can make. We could build and do something great. But practices like this would make the nation of Israel be different. If they did it rightly, it would cause the nations to go, wow, who is this nation of, of people who has a wise God who lives among them. Now, as we continue on, we then get to what we might call the support of the temple. So separation, Sabbath, support of the temple in verses 32 through 39. We're going to see a bunch of different donations and a bunch of givings, offerings that were made in order to support the temple. Let's read it. Verse 32 to 39, we'll finish our passage. It says this, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. Oh, to be the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. 
For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. All right, I know as we read that, it's like that's a lot of instructions and a lot of details about what they're going to do. So let me break it down for us. In short, verses 32 to 39 is them saying, not only are we going to have different ways in which we organize our family and who we allow our families to marry, not only are we going to live differently in terms of how we do business and how we spend uh, our Saturdays, but they're deeply concerned about bringing the chief feature of Old Testament faith, which is the temple. And so the first thing they do is they bring back the temple tax, or what we might call the temple tax. Uh, it says they're going to obligate, and so they're going to, we are deciding on our own that we are going to, from now on, give a third part of a shekel for the house of our God. A shekel, and it, a, the weight of a shekel does change throughout different nations because it depends on how they, how they value things. But just for fun, uh, a third of a shekel is about, uh, is about 19 grains of, of rice. And so I don't know how you would measure that, but they had a small amount of precious metal that they would give to the house of the Lord annually. Um, and the, what's interesting here is this actually isn't commanded in Scripture, not an annual tax. This is them, again, choosing to be obedient by being very specific in how they're going to do things. Scripture does talk about giving uh, half of a shekel um, during a census, but nowhere does it talk about giving a third shekel annually. And so what we see here is this is the people of God choosing to be obedient. Is it commanded in Scripture directly, this specific thing? No, but they are choosing to say, we're going to be obedient by doing it this way. Because up until then, uh, the temple probably had no way of sustaining itself. What then happens is this whole thing about wood. Wood. Um, uh, verse 34 talks about how we have all these people and they're going to cast lots for the wood offering. Now, Leviticus talks about how what's supposed to happen in Israel, there's supposed to be a continual fire, a continual fire, so that anyone who was nearby could always see fire going up. And why was that fire burning? Because there would always need to be sacrifices, because the priests were constantly supposed to kill animals in order to show that people's sins need to be forgiven Uh, at least temporarily. That fire would have supposed to go on all the time, and it would have been a signal. It would have been something people would have looked to. It would have been a reminder that God's people constantly needed sacrifices in order to relate to him. And that fire would require a lot of wood. Now, the people who were supposed to take care of that wood back in the time of Joshua were the Gibeonites. If you guys remember the Gibeonite deception, But for whatever reason, they're no longer doing that. And so, again, how are they going to be obedient? They decide to make certain agreements that we're just going to cast lots. And so, again, this is the people of God trying to take practical steps, we could say spiritual goals, in order to be obedient. Now, we don't really know exactly how this worked, but some of the Jewish leaders in extra-biblical scripture do talk about what happened and they cast lots, which was some form of a random process of picking sticks or throwing things that would have been like dice. Um, but they would have picked families. And this led to the creation of a festival known as the Festival of the Wood Gathering, um, during which families would be chosen and every, at different parts of the year they'd have to go out into 
uh, the forest or wherever to get wood. We know this was a, was a difficult task because later in Nehemiah chapter 13, this is one of the things that Israel failed to do. And you can imagine with Jerusalem being resettled, there was a lot more building going on. There was a lot more need for wood to feed your families, to build fires and things like that. It took time and it took effort. And this was the part of falling after God that could easily seem like, eh, it's just another feature. Do we really, does God really care about the wood? And yet, because he cared about the sacrifices, that's something he also cared about. Well, then what we get to, after the wood, oh, I forgot to put that one up, my bad, uh, is the first fruits, first fruits. And in that lengthy portion from 35 to 39, the idea here is that from the time of Exodus, God had said that the first of everything belongs to me. God was the creator, and so the first of the tree fruit, the first of your dough, so when you're baked goods, the first of oil, and even the firstborn, the first of everything belonged to God. And the idea here was to remind the people of God that not only is everything belong to God, it is from God, it is sustained by God, and by giving God the first, you are trusting in God to provide for the second and the third and every other area of your life. It's with the contribution of the uh, of the first fruits that they would be piled into vessels. You would give them to the Levites. The Levites would actually take a tenth of that to feed the priests. And it is from that that they would often feed the poor. It was from that they would have temple celebrations. This was donations to help the people of God be obedient. And with that, they could do many other things that would have allowed them to take care of all things related to temple worship. It's at this part of first fruits that we are reminded that there is a financial obligation that the people of God took on to follow God. It is the reminder that what we give God, what they gave God and what we today are called to give God is not our leftovers, uh, not our extra change if we have any, but it's the best, the first. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, they were supposed uh, they were on Abel was honored for giving the best of his first fruits of his yield. And what we see here is the reminder that in doing all these things and giving the best and the first fruits, it was a statement that the people of God were saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, as we kind of try to tie it all in a bow, I want to examine all these things Um, just briefly in light of here as the church. There are three commitments. I want to look at three commitments Israel made that we can make today. The the old temple is not the church. The church is not the temple. We are not the new. uh, We we are not a, we are different. And yet I think there are principles uh, that we can borrow from them. So the first one was a commitment to holiness. A commitment to holiness. By Israel saying and doing all these things, they were saying, we are going to live differently from everyone else. They're going to say, we are dividing ourselves from everyone in the outside world. We're going to have differing views on what we value and how we live and the choices we make. It's a reminder to us that when we think about our lives, we as Christians today have a need to make a commitment to being separate from the world. So when our views of marriage and human sexuality are different, when we have a different view about the creation of the world, when we have the view of protecting unborn life, 
when there are lines we won't cross in work and in school, that even if it's countercultural, that holiness, that being set apart is a commitment that God calls us to make even today. God calls us to live holy lives that are separate from the rest of the world. We may not have to put our name down on a covenant quite like this, uh, but it is what we are called to do. Secondly, there's a commitment to obedience, and it's kind of implied for a commitment to holiness, but I want to point out a few things. It says in verse 28 at the later part, it says they were going to separate themselves from the peoples of the lands to obey all, uh, to obey all that was given. It was the idea of they have to obey the entire word of God. The entire word of God was meant to be obeyed, and it was specifics rather than generalities. I think sometimes in our Christianity, when we're talking about growing as a Christian, uh, we might say, what's something God's been teaching you? What's something you heard from the message? And we might, it's, it's tempting to be very general. And so general that growth doesn't happen because we're not specific, because we're not, we don't go after particular areas of our life. Oh, I just want to love Jesus more. I mean, that's a good thing, but in what way? In humility, um, in our giving, in our serving, in our evangelism, and I think there's a value to be seen in committing ourselves to specific ways of uh, being more obedient. Having spiritual goals, even. A lot of biblical counselors like to go to this text uh, to point out that there's a value to having practical, tangible steps for which we can shoot for in our Christianity to follow after God. Lastly, there's a commitment to the house of God. And we see it right there, powerful at the end of the verse. We will not neglect the house of our God. Israel had neglected the house of their God. That's why they have to bring back all these things. For you today, Christian, um, and I would encourage you to ask, um, is there a commitment to the house of our God? And by house of God, we don't mean temple, but we mean church. We mean the people of God. How is your giving How are your relationships? How is your free time? How are you using the life God has given you, having been saved and redeemed by Christ, in order to not neglect but to build the house of our God? When we give financially to the church, is it it sacrificial? Is it generous? Is it joyful? Those are the rules of how we give in the New Testament. Are those things true of us? I know it's easy because a lot of us, we auto-pay it. I think that's very helpful um, for, our, uh, for the offering here. But if you're not careful, that we can actually give to the church, even generously, but we can neglect the house of God in our hearts. And we're not appreciating and thinking about giving sacrificially. It just becomes another bill, like your cell phone bill, your gas and your electric and your internet. Is there a commitment to not neglect the house of our God? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 Samuel 12, 24. It's a Bible verse my wife and I like to enjoy memorizing. It says, Only serve the Lord faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. If we're going to do anything with our life, we should be serving God with all that we have. Why? For consider what great things he has done for you. And let me encourage you, church, I don't want this just to be a message just about obedience, obedience, obedience but it's always obedience and holiness because. For consider what great things our God has done for us. All these things that Nehemiah and his people had to do was about temple worship. 
It was things that was pointing to a future savior who they hadn't met yet. They'd only read about in scripture. And today, we have the privilege of worshiping a God who has already come. He is a savior that we know. Whereas Israel would have had to build a fire to remind themselves that sacrifices were required, the fact that there is no fire constantly burning outside our church building is a reminder that no more sacrifices need to be made. That the obedience which God calls us to is not one of obligation, but one of joy. And that if Jesus Christ is your king and your God, if he is your sacrificial lamb for which there need to be no other forms of sacrifices, then my hope and prayer for us is that we will join as individuals and as a church to say we will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the example of what it looks like to recommit ourselves to you. And Lord, we are so thankful uh, for the people in this church. We're thankful for how they have given, for how they have served, uh, for how uh, so many of them have worked hard to live differently and to have holy lives. Lord, we think of those for whom, uh, for whom have yet to know you, for whom struggle in the areas of being distinct and find themselves constantly blending with the, with the world. We ask, Lord, that you would help us today to draw to commit, to recommit to knowing Christ and obeying him. Lord, may it be true that we will not neglect the house of our God. Amen.